Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What this does is reorient our universities uh, back to their traditional mission. And part of that traditional mission is to treat people as individuals, not to try to divvy them up based on any type of superficial characteristics. Florida Senate Bill 266, signed into law this month by Governor Ron DeSantis, ushers in significant changes to the state's higher education system. We're going to elevate merit and achievement uh, above identification with certain groups. And in order to do that, uh, we had to uh, look at this new concept, relatively new concept, called diversity, equity, and inclusion. Specifically, the law prohibits any Florida public college or university from spending any funds on activities or programs that, quote, promote or engage in political or social activism, as defined by the State Board of Education. It also seeks to protect viewpoint diversity on college campuses, provide training related to civic education, open inquiry, and civil discourse. We want our higher education system to uh, reflect the best interests of the state of Florida. Uh, It's our view that when the taxpayers are funding these institutions, that we as Floridians and we as taxpayers have every right to insist that they are following a mission that is consistent with the best interests of our people and our state. But then, SB 266 reaches down to the level of what instructors can say and teach in the classroom, mandating that general ed core courses may not, quote, distort significant historical events or include a curriculum that teaches identity politics or is based on theories that systemic racism, sexism, oppression, and privilege are inherent in the institutions of the United States. Florida's getting out of that game. If you want to do things like gender ideology, go to Berkeley. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and that was Florida Governor Ron DeSantis you just heard. Now, parts of Florida's new higher education law draw their inspiration from model legislation published by the conservative Goldwater and Manhattan Institutes, where the model legislation says, quote, public or land-grant institutions of higher education in the state may not expend appropriated funds to support diversity, equity, and inclusion offices, end quote. The Florida law says, quote, a Florida college system institution may not expend any state or federal funds to promote, support, or maintain programs that advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion, end quote. Well, Adrian Liu of the Chronicle of Higher Education says Florida isn't alone. We have identified 34 bills across the country in 20 states. So far, three of the bills have been signed into law, two of them in Florida and one in North Dakota. Other states where legislatures are considering similar proposals include 
Texas. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, we call it division, inequity, and indoctrination. Like it's purposely being misused uh, to push a very woke, very liberal agenda. And uh, by the way, that's fine, but not on the state dime. That's Texas State Representative Carl Tepper. There's also Ohio. State Senator Jerry Serino. The lead item in the bill was to make sure that our universities and community colleges are beacons of free speech, that we do not have restricted speech. Nobody should hold back on their expressing their opinions and should feel comfortable uh, arguing and debating and uh, dealing with issues that are important to them. And Oklahoma, Governor Kevin Stitt. I think it's nonsense. Why are we spending taxpayer dollars uh, on this stuff? We, we already have, uh, you know, anti-discrimination laws on the books, and I think that's contrary to the mission uh, that we're trying to do in higher education right now. Colleges and universities should be places that welcome a broad diversity of views. And we've done shows about professors who worry about reductions in their academic freedom due to cultural pressures from the left. But now we have activists on the right using the power of the state to supposedly protect viewpoint diversity by banning certain viewpoints. So does this specific moment find echoes anywhere in history? Well, let's focus a little bit more on Florida. Anna Ceballos joins us. She's a Florida state government reporter for the Miami Herald, and she joins us from Tallahassee. Anna, welcome to On Point. Hi, thanks for having me. So first of all, uh, SB 266, um, Floridians might be familiar with some of the language uh, in in the law. Was a similar idea floated before in the legislature? Yes, the governor, Ron DeSantis, has really been pushing against uh, the theories of critical race theory and some of these themes uh, since really the pandemic started or when there was more attention being paid uh, to what was going on with the racial reckoning after the death of George Floyd. But it really did start in the K-12 system. Now it's spilling into the higher education system. But the first piece of legislation was something that the governor nicknamed the Stop Woke Act, which was really meant to address uh, parental concerns uh, that he said were related to teaching kids how to hate the country. Um, and and that, that those theories were, for example, aiming to prevent students from believing or feeling guilt or anguish about actions that other members of the same race or color as them were committing. So they wanted to really avoid the teaching of that in K-12. Now, we're seeing it expand to higher ed. Mm. Um, but just briefly, I understand that uh, the there was a, an attempt to, to expand into higher ed before, but that legislation got stopped, right? That's correct. That initial law, the Stop Woke Act, applied to K-12 higher education and even employers, for example, who did trainings on diversity. Um, and it was uh, blocked, temporarily blocked, by a federal judge who called it a, quote, positively dystopian uh, proposal for professors and students in higher ed. So it has been temporarily blocked from being enforced in higher ed, but the state is appealing it and it is resurrecting that idea in this new uh, bill that was just signed into law. Okay. So, I mean, it's virtually the identical language, isn't it? It is. Okay. It, it's pretty much the same 
it's designed to to apply in the same way. Okay. Now, I should note that um, we reached out to Governor Ron DeSantis's office for a comment or to see if he could join us. We received no response. We also contacted every single Florida state senator who voted um, for the new bill, now law, SB 266. Um, they either did not respond or declined an interview. Um, but so... Anna, can you tell us a little bit more about what the enforcement mechanisms would be that are within um, this new law? For example, if, uh, you know, regarding the the prohibition now of teaching, um, you know, certain certain ideas or theories in general education classes, how would that be actually enforced? Sure. So one thing I've learned while covering uh, education here in Florida over the last couple of years um, is that these bills and laws and legislation are being written in an overtly broad way. So sometimes it's really difficult to pinpoint exactly what, even if, if um, even if a theory is defined in statute, it is broad enough where there could be different interpretations as to how a parent interprets it, administration interprets it, or faculty and and teachers interpret it. So the enforcement mechanism is really in question as to how some of these broad definitions will be objected to. Uh, But the other thing that is in this law is that it does not really state and spell out how the state university's board of governors will be enforcing it other than to say that they are going to be reviewing the curriculum and making sure that each university and each college is aligned with the mission of the state. Um, And there is rulemaking authority given in the state law, uh, but those rules have yet to be implemented. So we really don't know what it's going to look like, but history has shown us that in K-12, for example, when these laws were being implemented and enforced, administration, the, the school districts, for example, were telling teachers to err on the side of caution. Um, and that we've also seen Republican lawmakers who hold the majority in the legislature in Florida, that they have been using the budget as a tool, right, to enforce uh, some of these laws. So we could see potentially the withholding of funds, uh, funding cuts, uh, mm-hmm. as, a, as a potential enforcement mechanism. Mm-hmm. However, none of that is spelled out as of yet. And there has not been a test case as of yet as to how this could potentially be enforced if there is an initiative or a campus activity or a curriculum that is in violation of these theories. Okay. Um, so, I mean, this seems like there's uh, there's actually several parts to the to the law, and I'm going to discuss them with other guests a little later in the hour. But these, these these two that are drawing a lot of attention about not spending any funds whatsoever on um, uh, on activities that that support issues around diversity. Does that include like student funds? Like, if a student group wants wants to hold a, an event. Well, there is like a very explicit language, right? So it's uh, state universities, state colleges, and direct support organizations, which could be foundations or any other groups that receive state funds would not be able to use uh, this money to promote or support or advocate or anything related to these theories. Uh, student activities, it would just depend if how, how they're being funded. I mean, it, there could be a variety of ways. Um, and so it depends on whether it falls under that definition. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you know, um, I've just got a minute left with you, Anna, and I want to go back sure. to something you said a little bit earlier. Like, there's no there's no outlined enforcement mechanism in the law, but it does seem to give both university presidents and um, the state board of higher education more more power in, in approving curriculum or even being the place where some of these uh, future issues might be adjudicated. Now, the board is they're all they're made up of political appointees. That's common in a lot of states. Also in Florida. Absolutely. And that has been a pretty key provision in the new law, because while, you know, that it, it will, it, spe- it spells out that university presidents would have the authority to delegate, for example, to deans or department chairs to to get advice on who to hire and who to fire. Um, the power is really truly given to political appointees and the presidents who are selected by those political appointees to run the university. And DeSantis has even suggested that that is how he wants to do it, because it will be he has alluded that it would make it easier to make changes if there is some objection mm-hmm. from the state as to how they're handling certain situations. Well, Ana Ceballos, Florida State Government Reporter for the Miami Herald, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thanks for having me. More in a moment. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking about new legislation signed into law this month in the state of Florida that seeks to make very big changes to higher education in that state, specifically along the lines of prohibiting the expenditure of any funds if a program is related to efforts on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and also even banning the teaching of those ideas and others in general education classes in Florida colleges and universities. Now, the state of Florida is not alone in this. We'll talk a little bit later in this hour more about how um, similar legislation is pending in a lot of other states. But regarding that banning of certain curriculum in college courses, the big question is, Does Florida's higher education law violate the U.S. Constitution? When politicians go into the classroom, they've exceeded their constitutional bounds. And there's 60 years of First Amendment case law from the Supreme Court on down, making clear that academic freedom, that is the right to challenge the unchallengeable and have these discussions in our college classrooms, is a special concern of the First Amendment. 
Will Creeley is a First Amendment attorney and the legal director of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE. And interestingly, FIRE has also been on the forefront of protecting academics and students with unpopular opinions from university retaliation. So they are concerned about all attacks on speech. And Creeley says the Florida law is essentially the same as the higher education portion of Florida's Stop Woke Act that was signed into law in 2022. We heard about that a little earlier in the show, and it It was Creeley's organization that sued over that part of the law, and that resulted in a court temporarily blocking it. But Florida appealed the decision. It's now in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. Florida is arguing in federal court that professors are simply spokespeople for the government. That is, they're reading from a government script, and they're just government employees the same way a press secretary for the governor would be, that they have to stick to the government's uh, decisions as to what's appropriate to discuss in class. That should scare the hell out of anybody who cares about uh, American public education and and particularly our, our colleges and universities. Again, it's the specificity of using state power to impact speech that Creeley is particularly worried about because he says that court precedent for protecting universities as places of free expression goes back to the 1950s with McCarthyism and the Red Scare. Professors were uh, told that uh, they could not teach in public university classrooms if they uh, had been members of uh, communist or socialist parties, right? They had to declare kind of loyalty oaths to Uh, to the state before teaching. And the Supreme Court made clear that politicians in the legislative process can only go so far, right? In the classroom, we are allowed to discuss and debate ideas. That's the whole point. So if you start restricting uh, the academic freedom of teachers, the court put it very starkly, civilization will stagnate and die. On the other hand, supporters of Florida law would note that the law includes a state uh, a portion that says universities cannot require professors or instructors to issue diversity statements. So we're going to talk more about that and what that means a little bit later. But Creeley argues that it's important uh, that court action against Florida law uh, that's now in federal court continues because, as noted before, other states could follow suit across the political spectrum. It's not hard to imagine uh, a governor of a blue state, Governor Newsom, saying in this state we won't discuss, you know, arguments for Second Amendment rights or what have you. As soon as we allow elected officials to start saying, here's what knowledge is, here's what education can be, particularly in the higher ed context, we're in trouble. That's Will Creeley, a First Amendment attorney and the legal director of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Well, Andrew Gothard joins us now. He's a senior instructor of English at Florida Atlantic University. He's also statewide president of the United Faculty of Florida, a union representing the state's higher education faculty and academic professionals. And he's with us from Orlando. Andrew, welcome. Hey, Megna. Thanks for having me. So first of all, um, how are our faculty reacting to the passage of SB 266? Well, it's a mixture of fear and fury. Uh, That's the clearest way to describe it. 
fear because these laws are clearly designed to uh, chill freedom of expression, academic freedom, freedom of speech, and other rights on campus, and then fury at the idea that the government in Florida believes it has the right to mandate the speech of citizens and to tell adults what they can and cannot learn on their higher education campuses. Mm. Can you tell me more about uh, the concerns that you and other instructors have about starting soon, how this might already change what you do in the classroom? Absolutely. So one of the key problems with this law, and, and the previous guest I think laid this out very well, is that it is purposefully vaguely written. The law does not clearly identify what diversity, equity, and inclusion are. And it's very clear that our governor, Governor DeSantis, and the, as opposed to the people who actually do the work on our campuses, have very different definitions of what diversity, equity, or, and inclusion, or DEI, actually mean. So the purpose of that, though, is to uh, uh, cause faculty to chill their speech preemptively, to think, well, if diversity, equity, and inclusion are banned and it's unclear what sort of courses or roles or positions fall under that, then I need to remove readings. I need to change teaching assignments. I need to not have certain discussions in class because I don't want my program to be defunded by the government. So what's happening is faculty are preemptively censoring themselves in order to avoid attacks from the state. And um, if, if that sounds to you like it's fundamentally anti-American and undemocratic, you would be right. And it's also unconstitutional. Mm. So, um, you know, there, there's kind of two parts to this as far as, uh, as I read it. There's the 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 defunding part, right, where um, it, there's this express prohibition against um, using any funds, whether state or federal, even student funds, as far as I can understand, um, for any program that, again, as you say, vaguely uh, supports diversity, equity, inclusion. And then there's the direct uh, prohibition on um, teaching certain ideas in general ed courses. Now, can you help me understand what general ed courses in the Florida higher ed context actually means? So general education courses are those courses that all students who go to a university or college have to take. They're uh, uh, traditionally considered to be sort of foundational requirements in mathematics, history, philosophy, art, right, just sort of across the board so that when students get to their upper level courses, they're all operating from the same general knowledge foundation. So any changes to general education requirements are going to affect all of the students of Florida. So this is a wide-ranging attack on the rights of faculty to speak truth and to teach openly and honestly under an authoritarian regime. And it's an attack on the rights of students to hear ideas and to have access to the full range of ideas that are available in our society. Mm. Now, the concern here, one of the biggest concerns is this is coming from the state, right? So the power of the state is behind this law. And at the same time, as um, and I'm not doing any false equivalencies here. I'm just trying to understand sort of what has allowed um, a, a law like this uh, to propel itself through the legislature and to, you know, the desk of a governor who signed it. Because, you know, I'm looking at um, the the state of 
or, or beliefs around the state of freedom of expression on college campuses, right? And one of the things that the law points out is that a Florida state university, quote, may not require any statement, pledge, or oath other than to uphold general and federal law or the U.S. Constitution, okay? Now, that to me is going directly towards this trend that we've seen of so-called diversity statements that faculty have to write and sign um, and submit as, you you know, stating what they will specifically do to advance uh, DEI provisions at their respective institutions. I'm just wondering if you've seen other forms of, of speech or academic freedom, again, culturally be chilled on college campuses. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it, it really goes back to what what fundamentally is underlying all of these attacks, right? The, the demonization of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which, by the way, those programs are fundamentally good for higher education because they help underrepresented groups and members of society actually have a presence in, um, in our education system and help them succeed. Um, but the underlying narrative about all of this is that Governor DeSantis and his supporters want to whitewash American history. They want to essentially ban universities from talking about ideas that that are basic to our country that you know Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence but he was a slave owner that uh, freed slaves were not considered full human beings in our Constitution, that the University of Florida did not admit black students for the first hundred years of its history. These are not theories. These are facts. But th- these are the exact facts that Governor DeSantis wants to erase. And he wants to camouflage that attack, that whitewashing of history under concerns about diversity, equity, and inclusion, or uh, discussions that uh, racism, systemic racism could be inherent to our society. So all of those ideas that are very important for understanding the cultural moment that we're in now are being chilled by this law because the goal is to make faculty sit back and wonder, does my speech fall under the ban that the government has created? And if it does, what boogeyman, whether my department chair, my dean, my provost, the board of trustees, political appointees that I interact with, who's going to get involved to make my life more difficult? Um, and, and I would also add that this is joined with the attack on unions like ours. Governor DeSantis is trying to dismantle uh, public sector unions that do not traditionally support conservative causes because he knows that by taking away the collective voice of faculty in particular across this state, it will be easier to target and eliminate individual faculty members from these campuses who teach subjects that he personally and politically disagrees with. Mm-hmm. I want to say again that we did reach out to Governor DeSantis's office for comment, statement, or if you could join us, did not hear back. We also reached out to every person, uh, every state senator that uh, voted for this new law and they either did not respond or um, declined uh, to comment. But you're, you're, Andrew, you're specifically talking about, let me, I just want to read the language of this portion of, of the law because it says, the Board of Governors shall periodically review the mission of each constituent university and make updates or revisions as needed. Upon completion of a review of the mission, the Board shall review existing academic programs for alignment with the mission. The Board shall include in its review a directive to each constituent university regarding its programs for any curriculum that violates uh, another section of the law or that is based on theories 
that systemic racism, sexism, oppression, and privilege are inherent in the institutions of the United States and were created to maintain social, political, and economic inequities. So let's say for a moment, Andrew, that you had to teach a course that took that mandate into account. I mean, how, how would you teach um, the colonial era in this country or the civil war in this country? Well, you'd have to teach a severely redacted, edited version that is motivated by censorship from the state. You would have to omit or whitewash portions of American history that talk about systemic racism in the way our laws were written. You would have to avoid discussion of Jim Crow laws, for instance. You would have to avoid discussion of segregation in our schools. You would have to broadly eliminate the history of the people of color in Florida and in the United States from your teaching in order to avoid being fired, having your program canceled or defunded, or having uh, your courses eliminated from the mission of the institution itself. And that is where the United Faculty of Florida comes in. If you look at the way that language is written, um, you can tell that the goal of those changes and those amendments to that legislation was to make it difficult to pinpoint who's going to get dragged into court and who's going to get protested for violating the fundamental constitutional rights of our higher education students and faculty. The fact that these legislators and the governor wouldn't even come on to do an interview shows you the lack of pride they have in the horrible work that they did this session. And as soon as the Board of Governors takes action to eliminate programs and classes because faculty are teaching openly and honestly about American history, you better believe that UFF is going to be there to give them a hell of a time. Mm. You know, um, I want to just emphasize something that... uh, um, Again, there's there, to me there's there's a difference between some cultural pressures and um, and pressures that come from the power of the state. So I am not making a, a an equivalence here between the two, but I am trying to understand again how we got here. And I want to go back quickly to those diversity statements that I was pointing out earlier, Andrew. I mean. You know, there are places where instructors are required to issue those statements as a, um, you know, a condition of their employment. Um, in, in a sense, they, you know, they're, they're asked to be told about their, they're asked to express their loyalty to the ideas of diversity, equity and inclusion, whether or not they agree with all of them. And then there we have the, the uh, uh, you know, the now the longstanding news items of uh, people with conservative viewpoints being disinvited to uh, speak on campus or being shouted down, um, et cetera. I'm just wondering, again, not saying that the state should step in and tell people how to think, but how much do you think the culture of college campuses has played into getting us to this moment? You know, I think there's a lot of misrepresentation going on about all of those items that you just mentioned. So, for instance, diversity, equity, and inclusion statements. I have yet to see instructions for a statement that require some sort of assertion of loyalty to diversity, equity, and inclusion as a, ter- as a means of employment. What I have seen are basic uh, opportunities for individuals to show how they understand uh, inclusion requirements and how they are going to enact those in their classrooms. So, 
For instance, in both Florida law and in federal law, there are non-discrimination requirements as they apply to the workplace, and those include education. So a DEI statement is your opportunity to say, I understand that I have non-discrimination requirements in my classroom, and here is how I create my assignments and how I put together course readings and how I do exams to make sure that all of that is accessible to everyone, regardless of race, ability, background, whatever. So I see these as positive things, and I have yet to be shown an example of where it's some sort of loyalty oath. Mm. But at the same time, when I hear people talk about conservative speakers who have been disinvited, every time I see that, what I find is that students are exercising their constitutional rights to protest a speaker with whom they disagree. I think that's a good thing. Students should be able to protest and share their opinion. And then it is up to the administration to decide how they want to respond. And you know, if that speaker is expressing hate speech or white supremacy or other ideas as opposed to traditional viewpoints, I think that's something that the institution should grapple with and decide if that person has a place on a campus of higher learning where we should be speaking truth. Well, Andrew Gothard, senior instructor of English at Florida Atlantic University and statewide president of the United Faculty of Florida, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. When we come back, we're going to talk about deeper echoes in history uh, when it comes to these new higher ed laws in the United States. This is On Point. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And just a note about something we're working on for later this week. It's about medical aid in dying. And of course, that's when a terminally ill person takes prescribed drugs to end their life at a time and place of their choosing. It's legal in 10 states and more are expected to allow it this year. So we want to hear from you. Do you already live in a state with this option? Have you known someone Uh, who ended their life in this way. Um, Or maybe you know someone who's struggling with a terminal illness who wish they had the option for medical aid in dying. Or has it changed the way you think about the death you want to have? Um, So we want to hear your stories. Send them via the On Point Vox Pop app. Um, You can get get the app wherever you get your apps and just look for On Point Vox Pop. Or you can also leave us a voicemail at 617 Three five three zero six eight three. That's six one seven three five three zero six eight three. I'm particularly interested in hearing from folks who do not have the option for medical aid in dying where where they live, but perhaps you're thinking about some other way to um, you or someone you know are thinking about another way to um, have the death that they want in the time and place of their choosing. So again, send us your stories. Today, we are talking about um, not just in Florida, but other laws and bills pending across the United States that have to do with higher education and particularly efforts to uh, reduce or eliminate funding entirely for so-called diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, or even mandating what can and can't be taught 
regarding those ideas in university and college classrooms. Well, a little bit earlier, you heard from Adrienne Liu, senior reporter at the Chronicle of Higher Education. And remember, she told us that uh, the Chronicle of Higher Ed has actually been tracking legislation targeting these programs um, across the country. We're focusing on four areas, and um, the four areas are, one, banning uh, diversity offices, diversity, equity, inclusion offices, or staff or programming. One would ban mandatory diversity training. One would prohibit the use of diversity statements in um, hiring or admissions or promotion. And one would ban the use of identity characteristics, such as race and sex, in, again, admissions, hiring, or promotions. Uh, looking at those those four specific areas, we have identified 34 bills across the country in 20 states. So far, three of the bills have been signed into law, two of them in Florida and one in North Dakota. And those four areas that Adrian talked about were also the focus of the model legislation drafted by conservative groups, the Goldwater Institute and the Manhattan Institute. They believe that diversity, equity and inclusion offices have become a, a large bureaucracy in higher education that they feel does not um, have value and that also promotes a uniformity in thought and that they they believe that it restricts academic freedom. Um, and so they propose this model legislation. Um, we've seen, you know, variations of it across the country. Some of some of the bills, um, you know, definitely follow the model legislation more closely. Others take their own versions of it. But we've certainly seen at least the ideas um, in, in many states across the country. Again, that's Adrian Liu, senior reporter at the Chronicle of Higher Education. Well, joining us now is Eden McLean, associate professor of history at Auburn University, and she joins us from Auburn, Alabama. Professor McLean, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so you've written about uh, the Florida law and laws, I should say, um, and you wrote this, which has really caught my attention. Um, You said that critics, including scholars and politicians, have often decried such measures not merely as symptoms of America's culture wars, but as distinctly fascist. And then you say, I am often frustrated by the ways fascism is applied uncritically as a substitute for something I don't like. Does does the word apply here in this (laughs) case? Um, I... I, I want to tread carefully because I think it is really both powerful and disingenuous to use the term fascism uncritically and um, when you're angry uh, about something. But there are several characteristics of DeSantis's sort of program projects um, as regards to education that really do uh, have echoes in um, fascist regimes or fascist agendas. And that's what I, I am absolutely not saying that DeSantis is fascist. Uh, for one, he does not have a parastate milita- uh, paramilitary uh, organization at his command. But there are uh, important characteristics that need to be thought about as we move forward, um, as long as we want to maintain a democratic society. Um, and well, can I just jump in here? Because mm-hmm. I, I should outline your, your bona fides here. You're a histor- sure. you're a, you're specifically a historian of fascism and particularly Italian fascist education. Um, 
Okay. And so uh, you've said that you see some echoes there about uh, between what happened in Italy and some of these uh, ambitions that you're that you're seeing uh, uh, in U.S. states. And the echoes being an expose uh, uh, that it exposes a shared threat to democracy. So yes. give me the details about why. What happened in Italy that strikes you as so familiar when you see what's happening here? Sure. Well, I think it gets back to, uh, one, what people think the role of education is. And in fascist Italy, the role of education was to train uh, children to be loyal uh, Italian fascists of the state um, and to be loyal fascists in the sense of uh, both embodying and supporting uh, the values of the fascist regime um, in terms of, say, obedience, piety, um, and loyalty. Um, and so what the characteristics that I'm most am alarmed by in terms of uh, DeSantis's acts and, frankly, those in other parts of, of the state's are sort of five, um, five tendencies. One is to basically ignore the the experts um, in education and in particular fields. Two is to punish opposing viewpoints if you can't just easily get rid of them. Three is to claim that society is falling apart and um, you are there to sort of the leader is there to uh, fix it and get it back on track and use fear as um, as the tactic to do that. Four, um, to define very narrowly the collective experience of, um, of the, the community. Um, and five, uh, claim that these policies are a result of a so-called popular will. Um, and DeSantis does this by talking about it being sort of a parental rights. Mm, mm. Now, okay, so that's that's quite a that's quite a few parallels <laughs> that you're talking about here. I, I, I mean, I, I'm seeing you've written that more even more specifically um, as Mussolini saw. Uh, this is from your paper as M- Mussolini mm-hmm. solidified his power in the 1920s. He increasingly placed restrictions on school curricula. Right. And mm-hmm. so yes. so this is where I mean, to, to me, the the question really here is the use of state power. Right. Because, yes. you know, folks who have concerns about already extant um, squeezes on freedom of expression on college campuses, w- they would point to, um, uh, you know, certain um, progressive orthodoxies uh, and the way that they are imbued and and perhaps even taught on college campuses as producing exactly what you said, the obedience, piety, and loyalty to a certain set of ideas. And they want to push back against that by making, you know, different viewpoints uh, welcome again on campus. But I keep coming back to this. Is the difference between that um, and what we're seeing with these laws is effectively the use of the power of the state? Yes, absolutely. Although, to be honest, uh, the power of the state in this country has been used frequently uh, to discuss and restrict academic freedom, as several of your uh, of your guests have have already discussed. Um, 
the particular challenge here is, as you have also discussed, the fact that the school board in Florida and elsewhere is made up of political appointees. And until March of this year, um, there was not a single educator on the Florida Board of Education. Uh, One teacher was added at the very end of March. Um, And so they are, it is not just that it is, uh, that they are using the power of the state to mandate specific ideas, um, because frankly, we have curricular uh, expectations across the board, but that the mandates are being designed and developed by people who are not experts in pedagogy or the specific fields of study that they are discussing. And so more and more, it is about creating curricular demands that have that are based on sort of personal desire or understanding of what is important to learn mm. as opposed to any kind of intellectual or well thought out professional understanding yeah. of the field. You know, there's another part of the bill, I mean, speaking or the law, I should say now, um, mm-hmm. specifically because you, you had mentioned, uh, again, the the boards that uh, would have increased power in Florida. Um, there's actually quite a large section, Section 6, um, talking uh, about creating um, a, at least one center for classical and civic education, right? <laughs> Who's um, purpose would be to teach uh, the ideas, traditions, and texts that form the foundations of Western and American um, civilization. And it goes on to say they would uh, uh, educate students in core texts and great debates of Western civilization and the, the great books. They would also say provide uh, provide programming and training related to civic education, which is in dire need in this country, and the values of open inquiry and civil discourse uh, through lower and higher ed in the United States. I mean, looking at that, it that doesn't sound terribly objectionable. I mean, teaching civic discourse and um, uh, and civic education and responsible leadership and informed citizenship. These are all actually things that I think pe- many people would like to be brought into classrooms. Do you have concerns about even like this section of the law? I do. Not because, as you say, the in the abstract, civic engagement, civic and understanding sort of great debates and being able to make arguments is an absolutely critical um, set of skills for all Americans. And we are in dire need of that. However, the way that they are framing it, the amount of time that they are using to describe what constitutes the foundations of our democracy are extremely problematic. Because uh, when they talk about the foundations of Western civilization, they are talking about a very particular set of uh, pieces of that foundation. Um, And written by a very particular set of individuals. And it does not recognize the historical context in which they were written or the other members of the communities or communities that were involved in um, the development of those ideas. Moreover, I think it's very important to have a sense of 
a broader sense of history, um, especially global history, when understanding our own um, sort of democratic foundations or our own ideals as a country, um, because they also come, those foundations come from other parts of the mm. world and are have very important contrasts to other parts of the world. And we cannot understand our own country. We cannot understand our own political system without understanding those in other parts of the world. Okay. You know, it seems like you're describing the difference between what's written in the letter of the law versus the intent, right? Because as I read mm-hmm. the letter of the law, there's no, again, its its vagueness is, is quite baked in. There's no specific definition of what would entail a teaching civic discourse or um, Western right. civilization. But um, it's not written there what that means. Uh, so, you know, the things of, that you described of what people might want it to mean, that's the difference between what's written versus intent. But getting back to, we just got about a minute left here. I want to learn some from history, Professor McLean, mm-hmm. if we can. If we can. Um, I, I take your point about not really expressly calling this moment a fascist moment in the United States. But I'd like to learn what happened in Italy as mm-hmm. Mussolini expanded his influence um, into education under his fascist re- regime. What was the um, the outcome of that? Well, there were a number of outcomes. Um, the first is that uh, as he expanded his rule over the 1920s, he did not. He was not immediately a dictator. Uh, he was, in fact, invited to be prime minister of uh, Italy in 1922. Um, And it was only towards the end of the 1920s that he had gained total control over the government. Um, But by then, he also had significant control over the education system. That included also uh, extracurricular activities, um, organizations that were essentially the Italian Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. We've only got um, about thirty seconds, Professor. Uh, sorry, sorry. Yeah. they. <laughs> the idea is he was able to inculcate in the students allowed um, for an immense amount of popularity for when, say, the fascist regime invaded Ethiopia in 1935, and um, be quiet when they developed increasingly uh, rigid racial laws in 36, 37, 38, and, um, and not fight back, frankly, until they were well into World War II. Hmm. But we're not at that point in the United States, are we? Oh, no. no. Hope- and hopefully never will be. Well, Eden McLean is an associate professor of history at Auburn University. She's also a scholar of fascism and particularly Italian fascism. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor McLean. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. 